0: All right, if you would open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 will be in verses 1 to 15 tonight. If I haven't met you, my name is Wilson Van Hooser. I'm the RUF campus minister here. I would love to to meet you later tonight, maybe right after this, or maybe when we go to Brahms. Our sermon series theme is, uh, is seen on this graph here. It's relying on Christ's righteousness. Uh, That's what the book of Romans is all about. And that's what we're going to see again tonight. So Romans chapter 1, we will read verses 1 all the way through verse 15. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers asking That somehow God will will make it where I can at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, those who are in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are asking that we would experience in this moment your life-giving word. Holy Spirit, that as you take the word to our hearts, that you would take the life-giving word and that you would cause us to go from being dead to being alive so that we might receive that word. And as we hear, as we think, as we reflect on our life, help us not to silence you, but help us to embrace the grace that is in the gospel. Only you can do that work. But we know that you love to do that work through the preaching of your word. So we ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. The alert went out at about 8, 10 a.m., lighting up phones of people still in bed, people having coffee by the beach at a Waikiki resort, or even people who were up at an early surf. And here's what this alert said. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Estimates vary, but as this one article says, but it would take a little more than half an hour for a missile launched from North Korea to reach Hawaii. Traversing an arc of roughly 5,700 miles, state officials said that residents here would have, would have as little as 12 minutes to find shelter once the alert was issued. Within moments of the first announcement, people flocked to shelters, crowding highways in scenes of terror and helplessness. Emergency sirens wailed in parts of the state, adding to the panic. Here's what one man said. I was running through all the scenarios in my head, but there was nowhere to go, nowhere to pull over. Another woman said this, she said that her first instinct was to gather her family as she contemplated what she thought would be her last minutes alive. We fully felt like we were about to die, she said. I drove to try to get to my kids, even though I knew I probably wouldn't make it. And I fully was visualizing what was happening while I was on the road. It was awful. Maybe some of you remember that from a couple years ago uh, when that unfortunate alert went to people in Hawaii and they really thought their life was about to end. What would you have done if you got that alert on your phone tonight? News, as we see here, whether true or false, if we believe it, news changes our lives. It changes how we think. It changes how we feel. It changes how we act. It changes how we relate to each other. Remember the Roman church? I talked about this last week. The Roman church was made up of of ethnically Jewish people and Gentiles, which is every every other ethnicity in the world. It was a multicultural, multi-ethnic church, but there was an ethnic division there. They'd also had arguments about how to best live the Christian life. They had debates about which teachings would really make people godly. And so there was division in the church. There was a problem. You see, what would Paul's strategy be for this moment? Well, see, what Paul does is that he wants to use news. Because news changes people. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you feel. It changes the way you act. It changes the way you relate to each other. But here is what Paul is not going to do. He's not going to only tell people bad news and say, well, get it together or else. He's not going to do that. He's going to talk about the bad news, but he's going to talk about the good news. That's what gospel means. It means good news. Paul Strategy, which is actually very good for us to learn today, is that amidst all the division, amidst all the rivalry and the headbutting and the and the arguing, Paul's strategy is to preach good news. So, what is the good news? Go back to verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures we got to ask the question first, <clears throat> excuse me, who is Paul? Well, Paul is actually formally known as what? Saul. In Acts chapter 9, we read about the conversion of Saul, and eventually he would change his name to Paul so that he, he could actually better relate to the Gentiles. But when he was Saul, and before he was converted, he was a murderer. That does not go on a resume very well. He was a murderer, he was self-righteous, he was incredibly prejudiced. But that's the type of person God wanted to use. One pastor has said, what kind of dude you got to be to get into heaven? A bad dude. And that's the truth. There is no one who God uses except a sinner. Ministry is never from a good person ministering to bad people. It is a redeemed sinner who God is gracious to use who also needs the same ministry to other fellow sinners. That's hugely important. You see, if you're actually thinking about if you want to be in ministry, you need to be like Paul. You need to learn to obsess about the gospel of grace. Paul the reason why he's going to preach good news is because he has seen good news change lives. That's why this is his strategy. It's his strategy because this is what God employed him to do. But we also see about Paul, it says that he is a servant of Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. This, this word for servant could also be translated as slave. And when you take it as its base definition, not what we often think about in America... But just the base definition of slave is someone who is bound to their master. That they have a master and everything about their life is bound, connected to him. Paul is saying this, I used to run away from God and now every bit of my life is dependent on him. I don't leave out a single nook or cranny of my life. All of it belongs to God. You see, whenever you're saved, you are saved from sin, and you're saved for God. You're not just saved from sin, but you're saved to be with God and to live in light of God being your God. Paul also says that he's called to be an apostle. What it means to be an apostle means this, someone who is sent with authority that they receive from someone else, someone who is sent with authority that derives from someone else. Uh, maybe the last two years, if you came to our winter conference, one of the things that I had said is that because I don't ski because I'm a big wimp, uh, is that, um, Jake, our intern, shout out to Jake. Uh, Jake is me on the mountain. Jake is me with my authority on the mountain. What Jake says on the mountain goes. It is Jake's mountain. He has an authority that is derived from me. Here's what Paul is saying. This is not just Paul's advice. What he is writing here is an authority, is with an authority that is derived from God himself. Brothers and sisters, here's what this means is that everything that is written in the book of Romans, you cannot just say, I'll take some of it, but not the others. Because if you reject any part of the book of Romans, you're rejecting what God is saying. You can't do the Thomas Jefferson Bible where you cut out some pieces and just take some. All of this is God's word to you through Paul. That's what it's saying. You see the, the book of Romans is often like when you learn to take medicine for the first time in the form of a pill. It's not that you that you don't understand that you need to take medicine, it's just hard to swallow. You see, the book of Romans is it's not hard to understand, it's just hard to swallow. What what one thing we need to remember whenever we see this word apostle is this is that an apostle is different from a disciple. It was it was a unique Temporary group of men who were set apart for this mission. There are no more apostles today. It ended with those original ones. What we do now is this we do not come up with any new message. We take the same message that the apostles declared and we keep declaring it. That's what we do. We don't come up with something new, we don't come up with another strategy. We take this message because this message is not merely their message. It is God's message for us. Does that make sense? Paul says that he is set apart for the gospel of God. What does that mean? It means that God did the action of setting Paul apart for his gospel, for his message. You see, Paul He used to be what's known as a Pharisee and a a keeper, a dedicated keeper of the Pharisee law. But God came to Paul in Acts chapter 9 and he says, look, you're no longer going to be set apart for that. You're going to be set apart for what I'm going to call you to do. That's always what happens for a Christian. God is, as it were, in a way separating you from your old life to a new life. Now, yes, it's difficult. and We'll talk about this as the series goes along. But you are going to learn, like Paul, more and more as a Christian, that the entirety of your life belongs to him. That's what it means to be a Christian. So that's who Paul is. But who is Paul writing to? He's writing, look at verse 7. He's writing to all those who are in Rome. I do think it's interesting here that It says that he's writing to those who are in Rome, not of Rome. Maybe you've heard the classic saying that Christians are to live in the world, but not be of the world. You are in Stillwater and you go to school at Oklahoma State, but you are not of that. You are of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Does not mean you're a snob. That does not mean you walk around saying, sin, sin, ooh, big sinner. No. But you are learning more and more by God's grace to live life according to Him and His ways, not according to your old ways. He's writing to this church in Rome. Now, that's also very important. Paul is about to write a lot about the gospel a lot about the good news but who is he writing to he's writing to believers this is what's really important that you need to hear you never graduate from the class of gospel 101 you just dive deeper into it you never move beyond the gospel you dive deeper into it It's not just that unbelievers need the gospel, believers need the gospel. That's why Paul's writing to them. But see, Paul's, Paul's also writing the gospel to people, not good people who have their act together. Remember, there's a lot of problems in the Roman church here. Paul is writing to people whose sin is still messing things up. So let's remember this. You will never find a perfect ministry or a perfect church. You will not. And if you think you've found one, beware of that church or that ministry. Because there is no such thing. Because wherever we go, sin goes because we are sinners. It is no excuse to say, well, I'm not going to be a part of the church because they're full of hypocrites. Because that's the only types of people there are. Because we are all always in need of God's grace. That's who we are. Matter of fact, Christian maturity is knowing more and more how much you need it. It's not growing more and more and saying, man, I am a great person. It is saying more and more that we have a great Savior. Paul says that, this group of people who are in Rome, even with all their problems, he says that they are loved by God. Let me ask you a question, dear Christian. How do you think about yourself? How do you think about your identity? What's the story you tell yourself to interpret your life? And do you say this, that you are someone who is dearly beloved by God? Because that's who you are. I love what... John Murray once said, beloved of God, talking about this phrase, it points to the intimacy and tenderness of the love of God, the father, the embrace of his people in the bosom of his affection. My friends, God loves you and you can't say it enough. Dear believer, you need to hear this over and over again. God loves you. Let me say it this way. You will never be more loved by God than you are right now, dear believer. You will never increase that love. You will never decrease that love. No matter how well you're doing or how bad you're doing, if you are a believer, you are more loved by God right now than you ever will be. Amen? You just grow in your knowledge of how loved you are. He also says that they're called to be saints. Literally, saints meaning holy ones. And this is also very important for the Christian to remember is this, is that your primary identity is not sinner. It's not sufferer. You are a sinner and you are a sufferer. You're never either or of those. You are both sinner and sufferer. But your primary identity is saint. That's amazing. It means that God has separated you and brought you, as John Murray says, he's brought you into his bosom and he has said, this child is mine. And you're just learning to know yourself as that. It's kind of like the Lion King where Mufasa in the cloud has to tell Simba, Simba, remember who you are, right? Let me tell you this. One of the ways you remember best who you are is when you remember whose you are. You remember best who you are when you remember whose you are. You are God's beloved saint. Your identity is not something that you earn. Because if you earned it, then surely these people in the Church of Rome, they should not be called saints, right? This is not like what Roman Catholicism proclaims, where you can somehow do enough deeds to earn being a saint. That is not at all biblical. But what is biblical is this. Is that by grace and by grace alone, every single believer is a saint. And once again, let me say this. In Jesus Christ, you are as much of a saint right now as you ever will be. Amen? That's an identity you can embrace. Guys, we've hardly gotten into the book of Romans and you're already hearing the good news. It's amazing. You see, the gospel is teaching us to retell the story. To retell the story of who we are. And here's one of the things that happens on our phones every single day as soon as we wake up. We start telling ourselves a story. And that story tells us about who we are. What we should like. What our purpose is. who Who we should relate to. What success is. What failure is. The gospel redefines all of that. And what you do as a Christian, it's very difficult, but what you do as a Christian by the power of the Holy Spirit is you learn to tell a new story in the story of Scripture. That's who Paul is. That's, <clears throat> that's who he's writing to. Now, even more specifically, what is the gospel? One of the worst things you can do whenever you read one of the New Testament letters is that you skip over the intro part because you think it has nothing to say. Let me tell you something. There is so much here just in this one portion of Scripture that it took a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones months to preach this. Y'all thought I preached long. Months to preach this. Matter of fact, everything that Paul's going to talk about in verses 1 through 6, he's just going to unfold more and more throughout the book of Romans. The gospel's crazy, y'all. So what is it? What what is the gospel? Let's watch how how Paul describes it. Go back to verse one and and keep your Bibles open so you can see what God is telling you. He's saying, Paul's saying that he's set apart for what? For the gospel of God. It does not say this. And you can learn a lot about the Bible when you learn what it does not say. It does not say the gospel of man or the gospel of self-esteem or the gospel of self-expression. It is the gospel of God. What does that mean? It means that this gospel, this good news, it does not originate from you or me. It originates with God. He came up with it. He did not wait for us to Do something before he came up with a plan. He came up with the gospel in eternity past before anything existed. Which, by the way, that's how much he loves you. He had a plan to save sinners even before anything existed. The gospel is, Paul says it's of God. God is the originator and he is the main character. God is the author of the gospel, but he is also the savior of the gospel. That's who he is. He also says this about the gospel. He says the gospel was promised beforehand through his through his prophets in the holy scriptures. What does that mean? Here's what it means. When Paul says that it was promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, he means the Old Testament. There's an ancient heresy by a guy named Marcion. Don't name your child Marcion. Uh, Bad. Marcion believed that there was the God of the Old Testament who was just all wrath, all anger, and just nothing good. And then there's the God of the New Testament. He was love. He was embracing. He was gracious. That, my friends, is what we call heresy. Don't believe that. Because what the Bible says over and over is this. Is that both Old and New Testaments. They're not two different books. It's one book. The Bible. Here's a great definition of the Bible. The Bible is one book. About one God. With one gospel. Sending one Savior. To save one people. It is one book about one God. With one gospel, sending one Savior to save one people. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is this. God has never had a plan B. And that is amazing because if God had a plan B, He would have a plan C, a plan D. And which one are you in? If God only has a single plan, if He only has plan A, then there is nothing in your life that can mess up His plan to save you. Amen? Come on now. See, look, I was telling you, uh, you know, Uh, Preaching is a back and forth thing, right? (laughs) The gospel is God's plan. He he has always had this plan. Here's what this means. If you want to know the gospel better, you need to know the Old Testament better. If you want to know the gospel better, it means you need to know Leviticus better. The entire Old Testament Leviticus, Chronicles, and all his genealogies. Esther, where the name of God is not even mentioned. That's actually for a purpose. Any book in the Old Testament is leading up to Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. It is either looking forward to Jesus, or it is showing Jesus, or it's reflecting on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Because it's one book one god one salvation one gospel one savior for one people neglecting the old testament is kind of like this it's like you watch the very last the eighth movie of harry potter and as you watch that movie you just you're like i don't understand what the whole fuss is about because that's the only one you've watched and then when professor mcgonagall does that really cool spell where the stone people jump down and everyone else is getting like goosebumps on their arms and you're like I don't get it. Because the whole thing has been leading up to that. It's the same thing with Scripture. You need the whole Bible in order to become a whole Christian. The Gospel, look at verse 3. Who's it about? What's it about? What is this good news about? Concerning His Son. And now it gets into, and I'll explain this in just a second. It'll explain what the Son does... But you'll see this concerning his son, then it'll explain it. And then it says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel is about Jesus. It is about the son. I want to tell you the gospel in merely three words using the name and titles of Jesus right here. Jesus, Christ, and Lord. Do you know what the name Jesus means? The name of Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. The title, Christ, is not his last name. The title, Christ, means that he is God's savior. He is God's anointed who will do the job. And when it says that he is Lord, it means that he is the absolute sovereign who has ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns over all things. That's the gospel. It's merely in his name. But when it says that it's concerning his son, what does that mean? We believe in one God, three persons. One God, three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when Paul says that the gospel is about the Son, he is saying that Jesus... Is God. Did you hear that? Everything that makes God, God is Jesus. That is hugely important. I want you to hear this. When you get Jesus, you get God. That's what you get. That is the greatest gift that God can give you. God does not just give you a gift, he gives you himself as a gift. That's what it means to receive Jesus Christ. He's the son. But I do want you to see this. Notice how Paul is explaining the gospel. The gospel is about what he will do, but it's first and foremost about who will do it. The gospel is first about who, and then it is about what. That's very important. Here's what you need to remember what the Bible teaches you can never separate the gifts from the giver, you can never separate the benefits from the benefactor. You see, this is what has happened in the history of the church before, is that sometimes the church, <clears throat> the universal church, will abandon Scripture and it'll start to talk about. Maybe the gift's totally separate from the giver. But my friends, the gospel is God giving himself to you. And unless you get Jesus Christ, you don't get any of the gifts. He simultaneously, he is the gift, and all the gifts are in him. It's kind of like, if I can use a negative example. um, And forgive me for using another illustration about people dying. But here we go um Jayden got on to me about that last week uh, she did those are, those are hot take for the week um it's kind of like sometimes when you see in a movie where there's a bad guy and he's he's about to be killed by the good guys and he says wait you can't kill me because i have the information that you need so if you kill me you're not going to be able to complete your mission basically right here's the thing about jesus you can't get salvation unless you get jesus Matter of fact, this is what it means to believe the gospel. It is not just getting a name card where it says, I prayed a prayer today and now I can just live however I want. The gospel is God Almighty giving himself to you. Amidst all your sin, he says, I am yours. Becoming a Christian is like getting married. He covenants himself to you. It's amazing. It says here that, going back to verse 3, concerning his son, it says he was descended from David according to the flesh. And then, verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. Why did we do those catechism questions earlier? That was for a purpose. When we were talking about Christ's humiliation and his exaltation, that is the story of the gospel. That God took on flesh and descended humiliation. He descended. He came down and in real tangible flesh, he lived life amongst us. You see... I love what one music group called Beautiful Eulogy. Here's actually how they talk about, in lyrical form, how they talk about the dissension or the humiliation of Christ. Listen to this. The infinite becomes an infant. The maker becomes man. The divine became despised. And the Christ was crucified. The author of all creation cursed upon the tree, talking about the cross, that he himself spoke into being. Think about that. The creator became a creature. The creator who created all trees had ordained in eternity past that one particular tree or maybe a conglomerate of trees or whatever it was, but every single particle of wood would go into making that one cross where he would go and where he would take the wrath of God. That's what we call humiliation. When it says that he was descended from David, it should your Old Testament bells should be ringing here. Because back in 2 Samuel 7, God had made a covenant, he made a promise with David that there would be someone from his line, someone of his flesh and blood, who would actually be a greater king than David. And during, during David's times, that, that was the heyday of Israel. But there would be a greater heyday, as it were. What it's saying about Jesus Christ, what Paul is saying, remember that's why you need the Old Testament. It's saying this Jesus is the long-awaited king. Can I blow your minds for a second? At the moment when Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, he was the sovereign over all creation. He was running the world, even then. He is God and he is man. So even when he was... A baby in the feeding trough with whatever cows or goats or whatever were literally probably leaning over him. He was sovereignly running the world. And yet he was truly man. But the ultimate way we see Christ's humiliation is obviously when he went to the cross. Because when he went to the cross, he was humiliated by God and by man. That's by the way. That's what's seen symbolically when Jesus is hanging on the cross and his feet are not on the ground and he's suspended in the air. It is showing that God and man has rejected him. But it's on that cross in his humiliation that as God and man rejected him that he is bringing God and man together. That's his humiliation. What about his exaltation? Well, that's what Paul gets into next. He doesn't just He doesn't just die, but it says he's declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It's amazing here. What it's saying is that Jesus, in the resurrection, he is marked out as the son of God in power. Here's what it's not saying. It's not saying that the resurrection makes him God. It's not saying that he was already God but something about the resurrection marks him now as the Son of God in power. That word is also used for authority. This is crazy to think about. Jesus was already God. He was already the sovereign, but his resurrection gave him more authority. This is what Jesus means in Matthew 28 when he says, all the nations, all the kingdoms have been handed over to me. What did Satan mean when he tempted Jesus and he said, all these kingdoms I will give to you if you bow down to me? What did that mean? Ever since sin came into the world, God had temporarily, even though he never lost sovereignty, God had temporarily handed over, as it were, the nations to Satan to rule and to harass Jesus came down to earth and defeated Satan. He crushed the head of the serpent. And now he receives all the nations and the kingdoms. Guys, it's precisely because of the resurrection. That is why the gospel is here and you're listening to this message right now. Because the resurrection happened. The resurrection is proclaiming that Jesus really is who He is, and now as the ascended Lord, He has even more power. He's the Lord over the church, and He will win. It's an amazing gospel. All of this is just so extravagant. What's the purpose of it? Look at verse 5. <laughs> Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of works? Is that what it says? What does it say? To bring about the obedience of the law? No, that's not what it says. To bring about the obedience of faith. My friends, here's what you need to hear. Your first act of obedience is to believe that the gospel is true. And everything else about obedience flows from that. Believing that the gospel is true. Believing that you really are in Christ. Who you are. Paul is saying that what his ministry will be is a ministry that will help people believe the gospel and stop trying to earn their salvation. That's all our UF is, by the way. We exist to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ's church. How do we do that? By preaching the gospel, not be better, do more. It's not what we do. We say, Behold the Lamb, slain for the world, a Savior for sinners. Believe in Him and you will be saved. And by the way, that news will change your life. It's amazing. Guys, it is the news, the good news of the gospel that changes your life, right? Very quickly, what is Paul saying about how this affects his ministry? Look at verses 8 through 15. Paul's saying, several things really quickly first off that gospel ministry makes him thankful you see that first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in the world notice that Paul is thanking God because God does the work I don't tell Joe Lynch thank you when I do something I tell Joe Lynch thank you because he did something the gospel is God doing the work not you Paul also says that gospel ministry is prayerful. Martin Luther once said to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, he gives us a voice to pray. And we learn, we learn how to do that. But Christians are people who learn how to Speak to God and hear him speak to us through his word. Paul is saying that he prays for this people. He's praying for them without ceasing, he says. He's praying for their growth in the gospel. And I love what one person says, and I want us to hear this. It's great to talk with people about God. It is, and you should do it. But it's even greater to talk to God about people. It's not just good to talk to people about God. And sometimes that's what we say. is like, we can do the work. We don't really need God. We need God partially, but not in totality. But my friends, it is greater and actually what's going to empower you to talk to God about your friends. Let me ask you something. Do you pray for your friends in this room? Do you pray for your friends not in this room? Paul's praying for this church. He's also saying that gospel ministry is encouraging. I love what <clears throat> Chick-fil-A, uh, I guess founder or CEO at one point, I can't remember, but the GOAT, Truett Kathy, he once said this, how do you know when someone needs encouragement, that person is breathing? Well, that's pretty simple. Or how about this? Charles Schwab. I have yet to find the man, however exalted his position, who did not do better work and put forth greater effort under a spirit of approval than a spirit of criticism. Those are just worldly examples right there that's saying, look, encouragement matters. Notice that Paul's not saying this. Well, you guys are sinful. There's nothing I can encourage there. Right? My friends, let me tell you something. One of the biggest problems that we have today in our social media world is that we will criticize 10 times and encourage once. Do you want to watch your pastors and your interns and your servants burn out? Criticize. Paul says the gospel fuels us to do the opposite. It fuels us to go on a grace hunt rather than a sin hunt. Because where God is at work, no matter how bad the situation, there is always something to encourage. I think one of the biggest things that I could tell you is that if you would learn to be an encourager, it will radically change your life, your outlook, but also your relationships. When we understand the gospel more, even the most messed up people, we can see and encourage where God is at work. Can I encourage you to do something? I want you tonight, I want you to text your pastor back home or maybe your youth pastor back home, and I want you to find a tangible way you can encourage them. I also want you to do this. Jake's not here, but Rachel is. I want you to find a legit reason to text them. And trust me, there are plentiful. But I want you to be real, and I want you to text them and say, here's what you've done. And let me tell you something. That's amazing. Because there's enough criticism that goes around in the world, especially in ministry. And it actually shows we don't understand the gospel as well as we should. There's a World War II prisoner of war. Here's an illustration. A prisoner of war had survived prison camp for years by picturing himself finally being a painter. That was his dream. So when he got home, he would would finally do his dream. He, He would finally be a painter. But he told his wife, and she immediately shot it down. He never spoke about it again, and he died two weeks later. My friends, encouragement is like an EpiPen for someone who is having an allergic reaction. Let me encourage you to look at fellow sinners who are striving to walk with Christ and encourage them. Because if your identity is more being a saint than a sinner, then you should find more ways to encourage someone where God is at work. Criticism and cancel culture is killing us today. Paul had every reason to give criticism to this people. And he will eventually talk about their issues. But he is saying, my primary thing would be this, to encourage you where God is at work. And that's what I would leave you with from this message. Is that the gospel is about how God is at work in our lives, even in the worst people. On June 6, 2022, there was an article that read this. Around this time last year, the world was struggling uh, with the beginning, or excuse me, I guess it would be two years ago. They said the world was struggling with the beginning of a pandemic. Many of us were lost and confused, uh, often seeking some good news as the world revolved around negative news. Thankfully, John Krasinski, shout out to the office, John Krasinski stepped up at the perfect time with his new YouTube series, Some Good News. This web series had one goal in mind, to bring in, quote, a news show that was dedicated entirely to good news. He came up with this idea in 2013, but finally felt like 2020 was the right time to do it. And so when everyone was being swamped with The COVID-19 pandemic media was flooded with news about lockdowns and increased infection rates. But Krasinski knew that some good news mattered. My friends, that's what you need. You need good news and the gospel is good news. Believe that and your life will change. Let's pray. Father, we're asking that as we believe the good news of the gospel, that we would see ourselves and others transform. Lord, this letter to the Romans is amazing and we're, we're just, we're trying to believe it. Lord, I'm just trying to <laughs> save enough time to preach through it. Only you can do the work, but we thank you that you are a gracious God who does the work despite our sin. We do thank you. Help us to respond and sing. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.